Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. Charleston was a small, defenseless settlement when King William III declared war on France in 1689, and the inhabitants feared for their safety. The earliest surviving legislative discussion of fortifying the nascent port town commenced in the autumn of 1695 and continued into the following spring, motivated by the ongoing French war and a persistent fear of marauding pirates. The legislature's 1696 plan to build a permanent waterfront fortress flanked by militiamen arrayed for battle was later substantially revised, but it forms a significant chapter in the physical evolution of South Carolina's colonial capital. Before we launch into the story of planning Charleston's first permanent fortifications in the mid-1690s, let's review the state of defenses in early Charleston. South Carolina's provincial government was responsible for erecting and maintaining all of the defensive works built in and around the colonial capital between the 1680s and the 1780s, using tax revenue collected from the inhabitants. I've spent the past 15 years poring over the surviving government records from this era and collecting information in an effort to construct a narrative of this century-long story. The urban fortifications built in the 1680s and 1690s literally formed the foundations of later works, but the paucity of extant documents from those years makes it very difficult to understand the early landscape. In order to make sense of the surviving scraps of information, therefore, I believe it's very important to understand the larger context in which they were created and the continuity of the story over a longer trajectory of history. The removal of South Carolina's colonial capital, Charlestown, from Albemarle Point to Oyster Point in 1680 was undoubtedly accompanied by some discussion of defensive fortifications. The original settlers at Albemarle Point had constructed some temporary fortifications shortly after their arrival in 1670, and the government ostensibly planned to do the same at the capital's new location. As Morris Matthews described in a letter written in May 1680, the settlers at New Charlestown intended, quote, to make fortifications when we have brought our great guns from the old town, whereby we will be able to deal with the greatest force of any enemy that can on a sudden come upon us from the sea, end quote. In the ensuing weeks, months, and years, however, there are precious few surviving documents to inform us what sort of fortifications, if any, were actually built, and when and where the cannon were mounted. In fact, the surviving evidence seems to indicate that the people of Charlestown in the 1680s continued to pursue various private interests while ignoring their collective defense. Houses were built, trade networks were established, and plantations carved out of the native wilderness. News of a Spanish force supposedly marching towards Charlestown in August 1682 inspired the Grand Council of South Carolina to order the immediate removal of 20 cannon from the place where the town was first designed to be made to the new town. When that intelligence proved false, however, the inhabitants of Charlestown returned to their private interests and, for the remainder of the decade, ignored their defensive needs. 
The false alarm of 1682 apparently spurred the local government to transport 11 cannon, not 20, from Albemarle Point to the new town site on Oyster Point. But those iron tubes apparently languished in the sand for more than a decade. Shortly after his arrival in Charlestown in the spring of 1686, the Huguenot immigrant Jean Boyd wrote a detailed letter to his family back in England about his new home. The surviving copy of Boyd's letter includes a small, hand-drawn map of the town, the earliest known illustration of urban Charleston in its infancy. As described in an earlier podcast, episode number 98, Boyd's map, ostensibly dated 1686, depicts a connected series of rudimentary fortifications along the town's first wharf, now known as East Bay Street. Nothing is known about the chronology or the nature of these fortifications, however, owing to the loss of South Carolina's legislative records from this era. The Spanish invasion of the southern coast of South Carolina in the autumn of 1686 caused a panic in Charleston, but the political paralysis that accompanied Governor James Colleton's administration prevented the community from making any real defensive preparations in 1687. Then the flight of King James II from England in late 1688 and the ascension of King William III in early 1689 triggered a new war between England and France called King William's War in North America. Among the English colonies, most of the action in that nine-year conflict was confined to areas adjacent to French settlements, that is, from New York to Massachusetts and parts of the Caribbean. South Carolinians of that era were certainly wary of a French invasion, but the threat of a direct assault remained low. Governor James Colleton's reckless decision to proclaim martial law in South Carolina in February 1690 inflamed local anxieties, however, and ultimately led to his downfall. Although there was no standing parliament or legislature in South Carolina in the spring of 1690, the citizens of Charleston apparently rallied to create some sort of emergency defenses along the Cooper River waterfront. Our only knowledge of this activity stems from one sentence within a letter written in late April 1690. John Stewart, a Scotsman residing in Charleston, described to a friend back in Edinburgh the latest news from the West Indies and the state of affairs in the Carolina capital. Quote, we expect every day to be attacked by the French corsairs, and we are about to fortify the whole front of the town like Mr. Smith's palisaded breastwork adjoining to his wharf. End quote. The extent and nature of such defensive works, ostensibly erected along the front of the town in 1690, are completely unknown, as they are not mentioned in any other known documents. It is possible, however, that they were continued and improved during the brief administration of colonial South Carolina's most notorious governor. Seth Suthel, the owner of a share in the proprietorship of the Carolina colony, arrived in Charleston in the summer of 1690 and soon afterwards usurped the governor's office. Claiming superiority over James Colleton, Suthel gathered supporters who were displeased with the sitting governor and banished Colleton from the colony. 
Governor Southall's parliament governed South Carolina from late 1690 to the spring of 1692, during which time it passed a handful of laws and ordinances that were later voided by the Lord's proprietors in England. Few written records of this illegitimate administration survive, but statements made just a few years after Southall's departure suggest that some sort of waterfront fortification was built in Charleston during his brief tenure. It is possible that Southall authorized or perhaps improved the emergency preparations described by John Stewart in late April 1690, but the details of a defensive work later described as Suttles Fort remain a mystery at present. The Lord's proprietors, who owned all of Carolina, were frustrated by the factional divisions within the elected assembly that had paralyzed South Carolina's government for several years. Political differences between conservatives and liberals were further inflamed by religious arguments between Anglicans and dissenters, and a series of governors had failed to dispel the tension. The proprietors were no doubt pleased when the provincial legislature finally ratified an act to prevent the sea's further encroachment on the wharf of Charlestown in June of 1694, as I described in episode number 180. That law ordered the construction of a brick wall along the east side of the waterfront, which would form a significant improvement to the town's early infrastructure. The wharf wall, as it became known, added security to Charleston's original wharf, now called East Bay Street, but it was not originally intended to serve a military purpose. Concerned by the lingering danger that accompanied the long war with France, the Lord's proprietors of South Carolina wanted the provincial government to invest in some substantial and durable fortifications to defend the colony's principal town and port against hostile attack. To break through the stubborn political stalemate in the colony, the Lord's proprietors commissioned one of their own, a wealthy Quaker named John Archdale, to be governor of the southern part of Carolina. Archdale departed from England in the summer of 1695 with a long list of instructions from his fellow proprietors, including orders, quote, to endeavor to get an act of the assembly for the fortifying of Charlestown, end quote. Shortly before John Archdale arrived in Charleston, South Carolina's General Assembly made a small but important step towards military readiness. They mounted several cannon along the waterfront to protect the capital. The provincial government had moved a number of iron cannon from Albemarle Point to New Charlestown in the early 1680s and had ostensibly been collecting a public store of gunpowder since 1687, but there is no extant evidence that any of the cannon were fit for service in the early 1690s and no evidence of a store of gunpowder or shot at that time. That situation changed in January 1695, however, when the legislature ratified an updated statute for creating a public store of powder. The revised law appointed William Smith to receive the powder tax from incoming vessels and to mount 17 cannon on proper carriages and platforms in Charleston within 12 months. 
the preamble of the Powder Act of 1695 stated that it was enacted, quote, for the better prevention of danger in these times of war with the French king and the daily hostilities continually committed by the subjects of the said king, whereby this province, with other of their majesty's plantations in America, are in great danger, end quote. Governor Archdale arrived in Charleston in mid-August 1695 and conversed informally with local officials before the commencement of the legislative session. In early November, he wrote to the Lord's proprietors in London that the men who formed the provincial legislature seemed willing to build a fortification. The Commons House of Assembly convened in Charleston in late November and immediately resolved to raise money, quote, for the defense of the country and other public uses, end quote. To fund this new project, the House proposed to levy a tax or impost on deerskins and animal pelts exported from the colony. The governor, as agent of the Lord's proprietors, wanted the provincial government to use such tax revenue to pay the quit rents, that is, property taxes, that were several years past due to the proprietors. The elected representatives of the people, however, thought the immediate construction of defensive fortifications to protect Charleston was more important than the payment of quit rents to the proprietors. The young colony's treasury could afford to fund one or the other of these projects, but not both. The debate about fortification funding continued through a week-long legislative session in November 1695 and continued when the Assembly reconvened in late January 1696. At the commencement of the new session, Governor Archdale reminded the elected assembly that the Lord's proprietors had ordered him, quote, to endeavor to get an act of the assembly for the fortifying of Charlestown, end quote. The Commons House, in turn, asked Archdale, quote, if he hath any other orders or instructions from the Lord's proprietors for the fortifying of Charlestown, and how and in what method they would have the same done, end quote. The governor apparently did not have any such details from the proprietors, so the gentlemen of the House proceeded to study the issue on their own. In the meantime, however, they drafted and sent a petition to Governor Archdale and his council, explaining their rationale for prioritizing the construction of fortifications over the payment of quit rents. Quote, since now the considerable trade of Charlestown hath gained it the reputation of a wealthy place, which, we are credibly informed and have reason to believe, hath encouraged several privateers to attempt the plundering and burning of the same, which cannot be prevented but by fortifying of it, which is now under our consideration, but cannot be done without a very great charge to the inhabitants of this, their colony." Therefore, we humbly beg your honors that, for the reasons aforesaid, your honors will be pleased to forgive the arrears of rent to the inhabitants of this part of their province. It will the better encourage and enable us to undertake the great but necessary charge of fortifying Charlestown, the only place of trade and strength in the whole province, and which, being lost, will necessarily unsettle and ruin this now thriving colony. End quote. 
On February 6th, the Commons House of Assembly resolved into a committee of the whole to consider the ways and methods for the fortifying of Charlestown. After a brief debate, they reached two important conclusions. First, they confirmed their resolution to fund the project by imposing a tax on the export of skins and furs rather than a general tax on the inhabitants. Second, regarding the nature of the proposed fortifications, the House resolved, quote, that it is necessary that something be done at the end of the broad street fronting to Cooper River and at the south end of Charlestown towards the fortifying and defense of this place, end quote. Without waiting for Governor Archdale's response to their petition about the quit-rents, the Commons House appointed a committee to draft a bill to levy a tax on exported skins and furs. The elected representatives of the people were adamant about the need to postpone the payment of quit-rents to the Lord's proprietors, and they proceeded with their plans in spite of the governor's resistance. As the bill to fund the new fortifications and other new bills continued through the legislative process that February, the members of the Commons House turned their attention to the nature of the proposed defensive works. On the afternoon of March 4th, the House ordered Mr. Gabriel Glaze, Captain Edmund Bellinger, and Captain George Rayner to form a committee, quote, to consult and advise about the form and manner of fortifying of Charlestown and the charge thereof, and report the same to this House. End quote. The committee members returned to the Commons House the following day and presented their recommendations. Having made a nice scrutiny into the matter, said the report, quote, they believe it will cost £1,000 at least to make a regular and defensive fortification at the end of the broad street at the place called Suthel's Fort. End quote. Here I'll pause to report that my earnest efforts to locate documentary evidence that might illuminate Suthel's Fort have been fruitless. As the aforementioned committee report hinted in the spring of 1696, this structure apparently stood at the east end of Broad Street, approximately where the old exchange building stands today. Beyond that fact, nothing is known of its origins, materials, or dimensions. I can only offer a few hypotheses for your consideration. Perhaps it represented the continuation or culmination of the defensive efforts mentioned by John Stewart in late April 1690 and was named for the new governor. Perhaps Suthel was in Charleston sometime in the years 1683 to 1685 during his term as governor of the northern part of Carolina and, as a proprietor, ordered some defensive works to be built. Perhaps Suthel's Fort represented an expansion or rehabilitation of the fortifications depicted at this site in the Jean Boyd map of 1686. In the absence of further information about this subject, Suthel's Fort will remain an enigma for the present. On March 6, 1696, the day after hearing the committee recommendations about Suthel's Fort, the Commons House appointed a committee to prepare a draft of what they called, quote, a bill for appropriating the public money raised and to be raised for building a fortification at Suthel's Fort, end quote. That committee presented the draft bill to the House the next morning, and it was read and amended three times during the following week. 
while proceeding with its plan to fund this construction project with public tax revenue, the Commons House continued to lobby Governor Archdale for a deferment of their quit-rent debts. Their tactics succeeded, and Archdale finally conceded to their request. To accomplish his goal of expediting the construction of the colony's first substantial defensive works, he agreed to defer the profits due to the Lord's proprietors. On March 16, 1696, the South Carolina General Assembly ratified three acts related to the construction of the colony's first permanent fortifications. The text of each contains important information about the development of Charleston's fortified waterfront, most of which has never been published. In an effort to promote a better understanding of this topic, I'll try to summarize each act in turn. The first, identified as Act Number 129 by later compilers, included a preamble that explained the need to raise money for public defensive works. Quote, Whereas this part of the province of Carolina is always in danger by reason of the want of those necessary defensive means to secure the same, from the incursions of pirates and privateers, and more especially at this time, the war still continuing, and the late reports of the great power of the French king is designing for these parts. It being, therefore, highly necessary that some speedy and effectual care be taken herein, and that many other things for the public good of the province are now really wanting, which, for want of money or a public fund, cannot be effected. To raise a public fund to protect the colony, Act Number 129 established a tax of one penny current money on every animal skin and pelt of fur exported from South Carolina. The next act, identified as number 133, articulated how the provincial government planned to spend its tax revenue. First, however, the law's preamble offered a breathless explanation of why such appropriation was necessary. Quote, the Commons House, having taken into the serious and deliberate consideration the great and eminent danger which this hopeful and growing colony lies in, especially the port of Charlestown, at present the sole magazine and storehouse of all our most necessary supplies and residences of a great number of merchants, tradesmen, and others, besides great numbers of impotent women and innocent children, in the safety of which, in a great measure, the reputation, prosperity, and welfare of this settlement doth at present consist. End quote. For their protection, therefore, this 1696 Act appropriated the sum of 1,200 pounds collected from the tax on skins combined with a continuing tax on imported liquors, quote, for the speedy and effectual carrying on and building a fortress, battery, or fortification at the east end of the Broad Street, commonly called Blank Street, end quote. Broad Street was called Cooper Street in a number of government records dating from around the turn of the 18th century. If the tax revenue didn't arise quickly enough to fund the fortification's timely construction, the commissioners appointed by this act were empowered to borrow money at interest to expedite the work. 
referring to the 1694 Act ordering the construction of a wharf wall along the east side of East Bay Street. The 1696 Fortification Act ordered the commissioners, quote, to cause to be surveyed, laid out, and staked with sufficient cedar stakes the line upon which the wall mentioned in the said act is to be built, end quote, within 10 days. At the same time, the commissioners were obliged to place two cedar stakes right against the end of the broad street, and this staked location was, quote, hereby appointed the ballast wharf of this harbor, end quote. All vessels wishing to discharge ballast were required to dump their stones at that site and no other on pain of fines and forfeitures. This directive marked the beginning of a long-lasting government policy of appropriating unwanted ballast stones to protect the foundations of Charleston's waterfront fortifications. The third noteworthy act of March 16, 1696, identified as Act No. 131, was a revision of the 1694 Act for the construction of the wharf wall that I described in episode number 180. That project required each of the owners of property abutting the west side of East Bay Street to enter into a bond promising to construct a portion of the wharf wall within 18 months. The revised Act of 1696 acknowledged that the construction of the new fortress, battery, or fortification at the east end of the Broad Street would likely cause a shortage of bricks and bricklayers, and so the deadline for finishing their individual portions of the wall was extended by 12 months. Property owners who entered into bond with the government then received a grant for the low-water lot in front of their town lot, but then failed to build their required section of the wall, would be sued to confiscate their property. If the commissioners appointed to oversee this project disapproved of the workmanship or materials of any section of the wall, they were empowered to demolish said section and require the negligent property owner to start over. The surviving text of the Revised Wharf Wall Act of 1696 provides several details about the brick structure that hint at the content of the lost 1694 text. The builders of the wharf wall were permitted to use stones in its foundation, for example, as long as the stones were not visible from the eastern side of the completed wall. Quote, for the more regular carrying on of the said wall, and to render the same more strong and substantial, end quote. The revised law also directed the builders to use bricks of a uniform size, measuring nine and a half inches long, four and a half inches wide, and two and seven-eighths inches thick. The 1696 Act did not restate the planned height or width of the finished wharf wall, but it provided two dimensions that hint at the original text. The builders of the northernmost third of the wall, extending from a point opposite the southern corner of town lot number 17, now 148 East Bay Street, to a point opposite to the northern corner of town lot number 34, now the steps of the U.S. Customs House were authorized, quote, not to build that part of the wharf wall more than three foot above the high water mark, end quote. This text sounds like a concession, as if the rest of the wall might have been a bit taller. 
The lost 1694 text reportedly specified that the wharf wall was to be three feet thick, which measurement probably related to its base and diminished as it rose above the surface. The 1696 revision did not specify the breadth of the foundation, but stated that the entire wall should be built of such thickness in every part thereof as the commissioners overseeing the project direct, quote, so that the wall be not less than two bricks thick, that is, approximately 19 inches, upon the highest part, end quote. Because the wharf wall, measuring approximately 2,600 feet long, was composed of nearly two dozen segments built by individual property owners, the revised Act of 1696 addressed two structural issues. If a person began building his or her portion of the wall before their neighbors commenced doing the same, then the first builder was, quote, obliged to leave unbuilt the end or ends of his part of the said wall with a racking back toothing equitably proportioned both in labor and materials as to the surface of the foundations in his neighbor's ground, end quote. In other words, one should omit some bricks at each end of one's portion of the wall to leave a dental-like toothing that would enable the neighboring builders to splice in their bricks to create a seamless wall. To strengthen the intersection of every such party wall, the new law required builders to erect a good buttress at the junction of neighboring segments, quote, in such manner and form as the commissioners shall direct. The revised Act of 1696 also contained two paragraphs related to the use of the land on and around the wharf wall and the new fortifications ordered to be built at the east end of Broad Street. First, the provincial government empowered the owners of property along the wall to build, quote, on and upon the said wall, any house, edifice, or building whatsoever as to him or them shall seem meet, end quote, as long as it did not extend farther than 35 feet to the east of the wharf wall. The second paragraph appropriated a buffer of public space around the fortress, battery, or fortification to be built at the east end of the Broad Street. The street itself was approximately 66 feet wide, and presumably the proposed fort was intended to be the same dimension. Because that plan was, quote, too narrow for a sufficient number of men to be drawn up and arrayed for battle, as they ought to be, end quote, the 1696 Act reserved a further 20 feet of public space on both the north and south sides of the east end of Broad Street. On March 17, 1696, the final day of its legislative session, the South Carolina General Assembly ordered the provincial gunner, Captain William Smith, to mount upon carriages the remaining great guns that he had been ordered to make ready one year earlier. While this directive did not articulate the number of cannon Captain Smith was to mount, it did specify their location. Smith was instructed to place the remaining great guns, quote, at the end of the street near Mr. Richard Trads, till another place and a platform be appointed and made for them, end quote. 
This 1696 order marks the beginning of a permanent gun battery at the east end of Trad Street, which soon evolved into the substantial brick redan that was excavated and studied by the Mayor's Walled City Task Force in 2008 and 2009. By the dawn of spring 1696, therefore, South Carolina's provincial government had debated and adopted a plan to fund the construction of the colony's first substantial and permanent defensive fortification at the east end of Broad Street in Charleston. The text of their plan did not include any details of the proposed fortress, battery, or fortification, but left the specifics to be determined by a body of appointed commissioners. At the same time, the Assembly superimposed the proposed fortress onto the unfinished brick wall along the east side of Charleston's Seoul Wharf, now East Bay Street, the construction of which was funded entirely by the owners of private property. The wharf wall, as conceived in 1694 and reiterated in 1696, was a work of civil engineering that did not serve a military purpose. This juxtaposition of civil and military projects did not last long, however. In a series of amendments ratified over the next several years, the provincial government abandoned all of the plans and details articulated in March 1696 and replaced them with a more robust commitment to military preparedness. The next chapter in the story of Charleston's colonial-era fortifications commenced in the autumn of 1696. Governor John Archdale set sail for England in late October of that year, after which the elected assembly immediately revised its plans for the construction of an expensive fortress at the east end of Broad Street. In a series of legislative maneuvers that continued into the spring of 1697, the provincial government moved the proposed fortification to a new site, revised its design and dimensions, and finally agreed to build only one corner of a larger, unfinished fort. Charleston County Public Library is your home for local history. To explore our resources and programs, and to read an illustrated transcript of this podcast, point your web browser to ccpl.org. Thanks for listening to the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.